Welcome to Germany and Berlin, where I've come to investigate possibly one of the worst laws in the world. You're all here as German citizens. Most of you believe in that you live in peacetime. But there's a war going on in this country and it's played out on the territory of women's bodies. And all women have it bad, don't get me wrong. You're gonna be mistreated if you're in the life of prostitution. But black and brown women, there's just no consequences for anything you do to her. How do German citizens feel that your model, your legalized model, is met with horror around the world? Neutrality on some of these issues is utterly impossible. It's the coward's way out. Germany legalized prostitution around 20 years ago. Actually, it was already legal after the Second World War. But on the statute books, legislators had added that it was bad for the community, but still allowed, so no legal penalties. But in 2002, Germany doubled down on its legislation and declared that prostitution wasn't just legal, but it was also a job like any other, that it should be treated as regular labour. Feminists in Germany and their abolitionist sisters around the world have been pushing back hard, campaigning for these terrible laws to be revoked and to be replaced with the abolitionist model. Some of you understand this, know it as the Nordic model, where the prostituted person is decriminalised and the John, the punter, the friar, as they're called here in Germany, are criminalised and exiting services are available for those that wish to exit the sex trade. Now, I'm here with women from all around the world for the release of a report. It's called Men Who Pay for Sex in Germany and what they teach us about the failure of legal prostitution. I had the honour of being involved in doing some of the research when we interviewed male sex buyers in the UK back in 2010. And this impressive report looks at data from punters, Johns, in six countries. One of the main driving forces behind this report is Dr Melissa Farley, a psychologist, a feminist campaigner, and also the founder of PRE, which is Prostitution Research and Education. Now, Melissa's work as an abolitionist has been beyond impressive. She has interviewed hundreds and hundreds of women in prostitution, looking at the effects of the sex trade, of the things the Johns do to those women in detail. I met some German feminists, and it turned out some of them were abolitionists on the issue of prostitution. And it turned out they were looking for what do we always look for? Sisterhood, alliances, political savvy, strategists. And there happened to be some of those people in Munich. And they said, how are we going to change this law? Which is, as we know, one of the worst laws in the world. And from there, we went into a discussion of how can we work together to make this, make things change. And there was some interest in doing this research on sex buyers, which I consider heat-seeking missile 
in its best use right. into the heart of pimp land. Because they've had the testimony and the words and the evidence from the women, from the sex yes, trade survivors, have. for decades. Yes, they have. Wow, maybe. Wouldn't it be ironic if it's the words of the Johns that actually ends up getting through to the government? We're now at the press conference where the findings of Melissa Farley's report will be presented to journalists and they'll take questions from the floor. This research, released today for the first time, looked into the attitudes and behaviours toward women of 763 sex buyers in six countries. I've learned about prostitution from exited survivors who are the experts on prostitution, the experts on how it causes harm to those in it and how it harms all women. Now we have research that reports what the other experts on prostitution teach us, the friar, the puteros, the punters, the johns. I would like to open with one remark I never thought I'd make, and it is a public thank you to the freers of Germany. <laughs> I would like to say thank you very much for corroborating what women have been saying in my movement for more than 30 years. You have finally put your perversion and your predatory nature out into the full public view, and it's high time. You took your time, but you got there in the end, so thank you. <laughs> Rachel Moran is an Irish sex trade survivor and she's also author of the best-selling memoir Paid For, My Journey Through Prostitution which has been described as one of the most important books on prostitution ever written. I read uh, many, many quotes in this research and I think one of the ones that um, hurt me most deeply was the man who talked about the Asian brothels um, and the women he used there. He said, and I felt very remorseful when I learned this, this being that the women had absolutely no desire to be there and were brutalized by the pimps who trafficked them in here. And then he concluded, and then I did it again. You're all here as German citizens, most of you believing that you live in peacetime, but there's a war going on in this country and it's played out and the territory of women's bodies. And I am tired of having to come back to Germany as I have done these last seven or eight years, asking German citizens over and over and over again to take a look at the carnage that's happening in your country. Mm. How do German citizens feel that your model, your legalized model, and the impact of that is met with horror around the world, even to so-called sex work campaigners. In other words, the one thing that we abolitionists have in common with pro-prostitution lobbyists mm -hmm. outside of this country is the absolute horror at your system. What the activists and everyone are doing is trying to explain, trying to clarify what is actually happening to the women in prostitution. I don't think they realise the extent of the violence, the extent of the humiliation, the extent of the discrimination, the extent of the racism. They know it's bad, but I don't think they know how bad it is. 
What is noteworthy and so important about this research, I think, is that the testimony of Friar mirrors the testimony of prostituted women. They've been telling us this for 30 years, and now the Friar are saying the same thing to us. For example, 20 years ago, a Norwegian survivor said, prostitution makes me feel dirty. It's like I'm a receptacle for him to empty himself into. Two years ago, a Munich friar told us that prostitution is like going to the bathroom. You pay to relieve yourself on the woman. It's the same thing they're telling us. Once she's paid for, the men told us, in legal brothels, you're free to do whatever you want, regardless of German law. <clears throat> Our research on sex buyers reveals nothing that's surprising. Instead, it validates everything that survivors have been teaching us and the ones who listen. So what have we learned? Sex buyers have much in common with sexually aggressive men. The more often men paid for sex, the more often they committed acts of sexual coercion, including rape. They particularly believed the lie that women in prostitution are unrapeable. 39% felt entitled to do whatever they wanted to a woman once they paid for her. Julie Swede is a sex trade survivor from Bristol in the UK. She's an abolitionist. She delivers training for police, social services, and volunteers at an organization called Trevi in Plymouth. Wasn't shocked, obviously. I know that that's how the men feel about the women. It kind of shocks me that people get shocked that's what yeah. shocks me, is that other people get shocked and it's like, really? The fact that we're not seen as a human being, we're like a receptacle. Do you know what I mean? We're just yeah. something to use. So that doesn't, all them kind of things, what the men say, the punters, doesn't shock me, doesn't surprise me. They know what they're doing to women. The women know what is being done to them. Why on earth is the German government pretending that legalising this paid rape is acceptable in a democratic society? I think because that's what it is. It makes rape legal. I don't know no woman that's got rich from prostitution. I know plenty of men that have got rich and bought big houses. I don't know no women who are living in big houses in the country. And Whereas pimps get rich. Yeah. Brothel owners. I, yes. I know women who are now 40, 50 and got some fucked up mental health and that kind of stuff and on universal credits and struggling. And they was in prostitution from young until old and you would think, where's all their money? Do you know what I mean? They ain't making no money. And I think when you're in it, it's like anything. You justify I justified it. You know? Oh, I'm hustling. My fa oh, at least I'm not getting, at least I'm getting paid for it. 
And that's a sentence I hear from so many women, at least, and I think that's the saddest sentence you can hear from a woman. No one looks beyond that sentence. I hear it in exiting services all the time. Well, at least I'm getting paid for it. It's like, can you not see the reality behind that statement? So basically what that woman's saying is, it's been took from me since, for a lot of them, they were children. So at least I'm getting paid for it. Is that really what, that mindset, what we want, and to say to younger, oh, this is a profession, well, at least you're getting paid for it. It makes women safer, they tell us. And we're here to say, the survivors are here to say, no, that's not true, it's not safer. And I'm here as a researcher, along with many members of the research team, to tell you, no, that's not true. Legal prostitution does not make women any safer. Survivors have been telling us everything that the, that, the, that the Johns are. They're telling us the same things. I think it's really powerful that they admit with no shame what they've been doing to the women. And of course, we can see that that's corroboration. It is a form of corroboration, but I will say in these interviews, there was shame. They, some of them treated this interview, as you yourself are familiar, almost like a confessional for a Catholic. Or a form of therapy. A form of therapy, exactly. The friar, the punters, the puteros, the johns, they hide. And we made it as safe as we could for them to talk to us without any danger of arrest, of social stigma, of any of those things they're afraid of. And in some of those interviews, they did express shame, guilt, regret. Uh, ambivalence. Ambivalence. Uh, they labeled it various psychiatric problems, such as an addiction. Everything, it's the same excuses. You've noticed this too, I'm sure. It's the same excuses that battered, uh, that batterers use to justify battering. I had a bad day. My wife is mean to me. I drink too much. I just lost my job. My boss is bad. And as some of the survivors said this morning, prostitution somehow for these men serves as an outlet for all of their frustration and aggression in life as if they don't target their wives, their secretaries, their daughters enough, they have this special class of human beings that is labeled by the state of Germany as rapeable, usable, exploitable. And um, they do, they, they see it just the way the women do. Oh yeah. In Deutschland, das wissen Sie, gibt es zwischen 250.000 und 400.000 Prostituierte, je nachdem. Hier ist Helmut Sporer. He's a former police officer with 30 years experience in the criminal police. He only retired a couple of years ago. And his responsibility was policing prostitution and trafficking and organized crime. And he's told the conference about how he saw the criminal elements getting worse and worse post-legalization in 2002. He discovered that the women in prostitution were actually in more danger post-2002. 
He looked at the fact that crime was rising amongst pimps and drug dealers, brothel owners. And he says that the whole system of legalization in Germany has to be repealed. It is a disaster. Dann ist Prostitution ein ziemlich kriminalitätsarmer Bereich. My name is Vanita Carter and what I do is right now is consulting, training and education on sex trafficking and prostitution and I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. And you ran of course Breaking Free yeah, for I'm a long time. I'm the founder time. of a program called Breaking Free. You know, things seem to be going backwards in my opinion. It feels like I'm starting from scratch again in educating people about the issue. It's like they, I don't, something happened. Was it COVID? I don't know, but their whole mind, uh, the way they think about the issue now. Because Minnesota, I, I feel Minnesota used to be really one of the leaders in saying this is violence against women and we're not gonna, well now I'm trying to, they're talking about, it, it is her choice. You know what I mean? And if that's what she wants to do, it can't be that bad. I'm like, what the heck happened? You know? And, and, and our good friend and colleague, uh, Sherry Jimenez, who yeah. runs a project out in Boston, she mm. said it's exactly the same. Yeah. It's like you're fighting an uphill battle. Now, what you've really educated me and many others mm. uh, about is how racism and poverty and misogyny intersect mm -hmm. to uphold the system of prostitution. So tell yeah, us a little really, bit about how that it works. Really, it really does because it hurts to hear so, you know, all the stuff about uh, black and brown women, women of color, you know, the things that we have to go through in this industry. People don't think about that, you know. And all women have it bad, don't get me wrong. It doesn't matter your color. You're going to be mistreated if you're in the life of prostitution. But black and brown women, there's just no consequences for anything you do to her. Why? Because no one cares anyway. You know, she's a black woman, so what? You beat her up, you know, she's half dead. Really, there's no consequences. There's nothing she can do about anything that happens to her. And basically, it is, according to the report, the things that I was reading, a lot of the men chose to be with a black or brown woman because he knew that he would be able to get away with more you know, more of his abusive behaviors. And yet, you know. we know that. We know that those on the so-called left, mm -hmm. or liberals, yes. or Democrats, whichever right, version right, whatever. of yeah. supposedly decent mm -hmm. people. Right, supposedly. Supposedly anti-oppression, mm -hmm. right. uh, pro-equality. Yeah. How can, they, how can they defend a system of prostitution that relies on racism, that relies on poverty, that relies on child abuse, on misogyny, when they say they're against all of those yeah. things. Well, you know what, and, and I'm going to say it, for, for me, this is my opinion, just, I'm just keeping it real, I think people really truly want to believe what they want to believe. It's, it's <laughs> delusional, they believe in a lie. So where are the men educating their boys mm -hmm. against the systems of pornography and prostitution, where are the men telling other men this is not acceptable behavior and this needs to be called out? Because that's what we need as well, well as the work we're doing. That is what we need, but why would they do that? Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Because that, <laughs> even for, I don't know if you're aware, there's these men groups that are popping up in different places, mm -hmm. but they'll only say certain things is what I see. It's like they have to keep their manly, you know, they're, this is, they don't want to say too much is what I'm saying because maybe they'll be blackballed out of the men's club or something. I don't know. Okay. You know what I mean? But I think they'll only go so far with what they say about this 
because bottom line is they, <laughs> I say every man has a little bit of a John in him. You know what I mean? And I probably, I mean, I'm sure there's some men who aren't, but <laughs> at Breaking Free, we're saying one in every two men. <laughs> yep. It's grim, isn't it? I mean, what, what do we do to go forward? Because obviously we're not going to yeah. give up. We've been mm -hmm. at this too long. You know, we just have to keep doing what we're doing as much as we can with the little bit of money we have to do it. We just have to keep pushing. We have to keep educating. We have to keep training. We have to keep letting our voices be heard. And it's it's sad thing is it's going to be my granddaughters and my great-granddaughters sitting here interviewing in the next 30 years saying right. the same thing. So the pushback came later and from abroad, from pro-prostitution academics and lobbyists. Kaiser Ekis Ekman, an old friend, an abolitionist based in Sweden, is a journalist and a feminist campaigner. This pushback reached a peak in 2006 when there were serious campaigns to repeal the law. The number of foreign academics who moved to Sweden and started participating in the debate around the law was really surprising. They knew that a lot was at stake because if Sweden failed, then the law would not be exportable. Kaiser is talking about the Nordic model, which was introduced in Sweden in 1999 and has since been adopted by eight other countries, the most recent country being Israel. My name is Luba Fine. I'm from Tel Aviv. I was a part of a Nordic model campaign in Israel, which uh, ended successfully with enforcement of the Nordic model. Uh, in, uh, it was actively enforced officially in uh, 2020. Tell me something about the way that abolitionists got together and campaigned to introduce this? Because it didn't just happen organically, did it? You had to really push for it over a number of years. No, it never happens organically. Change in uh, sex purchase ban uh, uh, requires a change in uh, cultural perceptions and uh, uh, political forces and demands a lot of change. So what happened in Israel? We had a huge uh, wave of trafficking a huge trafficking problem because uh, it was a uh, vast uh, political and economic instability in the, in, uh, in the former communist countries, ex-communist countries in Eastern Europe. There were always uh, some illegal apartments and women were jailed there and some were forced to accept uh, uh, 30 punters per, per day per, uh, or per night. It was, uh, it was horrible. And... Uh, you, you would expect that uh, the public uh, should be shocked and say, no, it is, we, we, we won't let it happen. But it didn't happen very fast. Many people were indifferent. Female activists, individuals and NGOs, they created a coalition. And the, that coalition was focused on combating trafficking. It ended in uh, 2006 uh, with the further enforcement and straight, uh, strengthening of uh, the anti-trafficking law. We had many contributing factors. How could we end this situation? One of those, those factors was that it was also very bad for security. Mm. So in other words, they closed the border for national security as opposed to... And the anti-trafficking law. The so we are speaking about 2006. And then in 2008, the Galon, the same member of parliament, she uh, made a, a proposal of the sex purchase ban, ban like, like in Sweden. Because she said, uh, okay, we stopped uh, this cruel trafficking, but vo so-called voluntary prostitution is not much better. And the public 
wasn't ready for that. The public said, okay, trafficking was really bad, now we realized it, but, uh, but what's wrong with just normal prostitution? Uh, some women want, want to be prostitutes, some uh, are making good money. You, 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 you know, you understand this uh, part of so, so, so in other words, because they'd actually used the language of trafficking and anti-trafficking, they set up a false dichotomy. So it was forced prostitution, i.e. trafficking, and then, of course, that meant that the, all of the rest of it was automatically understood as chosen freely and unproblematic. Yeah, this is exactly what we have now in every country. People, people understand trafficking is bad and prostitution is not none of our mm -hmm. business. Whereas trafficking is merely a process to get women into prostitution. Slowly, slowly we started changing the public opinion. It, it happened when some journalists joined our side. Oh. And uh, we are also lucky because we in Israel we have an official lobby group. That's very good because obviously I love the story of the valiant journalist, but we know that we have to work together with politicians, with activists, with journalists. So with the lobby was extremely instrumental. I think that without, uh, without an official lobby, it, it is still possible to, to make the change, mm -hmm. but it, it make, made our life easier. What I wanted to ask about with the coalition of left-wing women and right-wing women working together, did they agree a set of principles or were they just all very, very clear that there was no tolerance, there was going to be zero tolerance of men paying for sex? Or was it more about helping women because of the misery of their lives? I think that our focus, it, it, it was just adjusted to, to our cultural value, values. So it was about prostitution kills right. and not about equality. I, I'm not sure that uh, equality between the sexes is uh, value strong enough to, to pass such controversial law. We like spe to speak about uh, equality between sexes uh, when uh, we're talking about salaries, but not this. I understand, because this is a much more complex issue and men will get defensive and... Maybe it works in Scandinavia, but in, in Israel, prostitution kills worked. That's really interesting. And when you, when you passed the law, when you knew that it was going to be on the statute, that it was going to be official. Did you celebrate? Did you celebrate with other abolitionists who'd also passed the law? How did you feel at the time? We, uh, I, I feel, I feel extremely happy, and uh, we did celebrate. But uh, it was very clear that uh, you know, women's work never ends, and uh, it was very clear that we are going now to work very hard on enforcement. Much of the testimony from sex trade survivors and others is really hard to hear. And I can see that there are many women in the room who are struggling with this, but really wanting to be here at this really momentous occasion. And then some good news. Now, the Green Party internationally is known for its horrendous position and policy on prostitution that they call sex work. And I mean, this is everywhere in the world, but with some challenges, such as in the US, of individual politicians normally that then get frozen out when they say that they think that prostitution is violence against women and a human rights violation. So the Greens have effectively, pretty much on a global scale, campaigned for decriminalization of the entire industry, but not Lisa Bardem. 
she's a Green Party politician. She has just said to the entire conference, on video link, live, that she supports the repeal of legalised prostitution in Germany and is going to campaign for the introduction of the Nordic model. Here's what's inspiring to me right now today. We have three German women MPs who are speaking out in favor of not only legal change around Germany's prostitution laws, but they're moving strongly in the direction of, the, of an abolitionist law, which would first of all commit the state of Germany to providing exit services for survivors, which I've learned over the years is not the main, that's the main thing right. we need to talk about when we talk about the Nordic model. Absolutely. Yes, arrest the punters. Yes, never arrest the women, but services, services, services. Right. You want to help a hungry woman who has no place to stay and who is in immigration legal la-la land, you protect her legally and you give her a roof over her head and food. Well, I can see change coming and it's also happening in Holland and we have a couple of Dutch activists here that have been instrumental in that. Yeah. And we know that once you disrobe legalization or its close cousin decriminalization, you have to do something akin to the abolitionist model, the Nordic model, whatever we call it. Because something in the middle is like being a little bit pregnant, isn't it? It's an impossibility. You have to go full drama into sorting it out root and branch. As you know very well, neutrality on some of these issues is utterly impossible. Absolutely. Neutrality means you're staying with the status quo. Yes. And um, it's the coward's way out. I blamed myself for years, all of the years writing my book and doing this activism and you know you're 20 years on top of prostitution itself and I had never even tried to say to myself you are homeless and you are 15 years old it was not your fault so my thanks again to everybody who's put this together and um and thank you again Germany for proving me wrong Bye. There can be no doubt that the conference and the report has been massively impactful. There were people in that room moved to tears, moved to anger, and you could see the determination on their faces to do something, to push forward the repeal of these laws and the introduction of better laws that serve the women in the community as opposed to the men and the pimps. And Rachel Moran just said it took her years to to understand that none of this was her fault, that being pimped and abused as a homeless 15-year-old was not her fault. The fault lies with the men. And it's the men that we've heard from in this report, interestingly. It's the men's words that surely will convince the government that this has to change.